Hello and welcome to series two of the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. In 2018, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And since then, I've made it my mission to make the most of each and every passing day. This has led me to cycle on a tandem from Bristol to Beijing. COVID got in the way and I had to take a break, but now I'm back on the road. Before you hear this episode's conversation, here's a little snippet of what has happened to me on my travels over the last week. This past week, I have cycled all the way to Bucharest. And whilst I've been on the road and fairly isolated for most of this period, there's one thing that I haven't managed to escape. Actually, two things. One, admittedly, is COVID. The second is the US election. Now, today, I'm talking to a man who specialises in divided and conflict-affected countries. He's had experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I'm hoping he might also be able to share a few thoughts on America. This week, I'm talking to Rory Stewart. Now, for many listeners, Rory needs no introduction. For those who haven't come across him, this is a man who has done a pretty extraordinary amount in not that much time, walking across Asia from Turkey to Bangladesh, working for the FCO. He ran for leader of the Conservative Party, which is where many people came across Rory and also the positions as cabinet minister. And he is now working at Yale University. Rory, it is such a pleasure to have you on Facing Up. Great to see you. So I thought, I would ask a pretty out there question to start with, perhaps an unexpected one, but you only live once. And I thought, well, at least I'm going to make this a memorable conversation for you, Rory. What is your favourite fruit? Now, I ask this because I was eating a persimmon earlier and it was something I came across when I was in Kyrgyzstan and they call it korma there. And it just got me thinking, you're a very well-traveled person. You speak 11 different languages. So my, my favorite fruit is mango. And why? I think that's because I grew up in, uh, partly in Malaysia. Uh, so ma- mango is definitely my, my favorite fruit. So you had quite a varied childhood. You grew up in Malaysia, but then you spent a lot of time in the Oxford area for prep school, then Eton, then Oxford, then the FCO. This could have been quite a predictable and, dare I say, stuffy pattern. But then you went and did a rather long walk. What took you to do this walk and how difficult was it to put aside doubts, to put aside the uncertainties and walk across Asia from Turkey, through Iran, through Afghanistan, through Nepal. Just how much of a change was that for you? It's a big change because I'd been working in embassies and suddenly I was pushed into villages. So during that walk, I stayed in over 500 different village houses. and was obviously outdoors all day, eight, nine hours a day I'm walking. And instead of endlessly sitting at a desk and writing and reading and going out to meetings. You are simply walking day after day and sleeping in people's houses. So yeah, a total transformation. Was that difficult having the solitude? Because that's something I've struggled with travels I've done of just being in your own head day after day, hour after hour. Possibly. I mean, I don't really remember it as that. I think I generally get lonelier in cities than I do when I'm on my own. I mean, I think the great thing about being on your own is a sense of genuine solitude. You have a sense that you're right out there and you don't have any expectation of meeting anyone. 
As to being in my own head, that's certainly true. Certain obsessions and resentments that you have can circle around your head endlessly, hour after hour. What did you get out of these travels? And I'm thinking it'd be very interesting to ask, what do you feel you still take with you today? Because this happened almost 20 years ago now. There are a number of things I took from it. I mean, one which was very important for me professionally was suddenly realizing the incredible gap between the way that policymakers, civil servants, politicians, think tanks talked about countries like Afghanistan and what they were really like on the ground. And I think that made me realize just how crazy and how jargon laden and inauthentic so much of the perception of the world was and made me deeply suspicious of the way that governments related to people. That's been very important for me my whole life even if the particular jargon has changed. So in, in Afghanistan, people would talk about a gender-sensitive, multi-ethnic, centralised state based on democracy, human rights, rule of law. You said that before. Exactly. In Britain, you know, they might be talking about equality, but I think it doesn't really matter what the big words are. They tend to have surprisingly little relationship to what's really happening on the ground and disguise the truth of other people's societies. They're not very useful tools. And that's the sort of thing that you can only pick up from being on the ground. And that does sound like an insight that you can take with you when you're in meetings, when you're discussing policy to be like, okay, this is what the experts in in Washington or London say, how on earth are we going to implement something that's got so many buzzwords in it when really what people want perhaps is a well? Yeah, could be a well. In fact, my general conclusion is that it usually wasn't a well. It was usually something much more to do with people's identity. It didn't make me a Marxist. It didn't convince me that fundamentally what people were worrying about was their material conditions. You know, I didn't discover in Afghanistan that what people were thinking about is where their next meal was coming from. They were much more likely to be thinking about what it meant to be an Afghan, what it meant to be a Muslim, how they define themselves against other villagers, how they define themselves against foreigners. That sounds like a very pertinent point to be making today, and I think we'll come back to it later. Identity, identity politics seems to be so dominant in many societies and parts of the world. Let's move on a little bit to your time in Iraq. You were the deputy governorate coordinator of two provinces in in southern Iraq, part of the marshes that were drained, and you went there around the age of 30, you're there to sort of liaise with local leaders, other authority figures. Did you ever have a feeling of why should they listen to you? What did you have to bring as an outsider? And just how difficult was it to help? I think it's very, very difficult to help. And I think as an outsider, you're in a critically difficult position. I mean, to be a Brit in somebody else's country in that context. It's not really a question of my age. It's simply a question that I'm not an Iraqi. I have no real legitimacy there. I have no real knowledge of what's going on. So although I found it an immensely fascinating, moving, engaging experience and did my best to try to be thoughtful, fair, energetic and governing and administering the place. In retrospect, government administration isn't simply about the personal qualities, the individual. It's not enough to get up early in the morning, do your work, work hard, try to focus on the details. Much, much more fundamental structures of uh, authority, legitimacy, power, which made it very difficult for us to really get stuff done. 
more done than you'd get done in Britain, where actually there's another type of crisis, which is that politicians often oddly also somehow lack authority, legitimacy, power, or treat it as though they do. Civil servants, for example, will block politicians who are sceptical the politicians that will do a great deal to try to stop getting stuff done. So I think there's something in common between the two systems. And maybe it's a natural tendency of any human society to resist power, to be sceptical about elites, sceptical about people telling you what to do. That makes this sound like a very powerful learning experience to be put in a situation where people are saying you have no legitimacy or very little legitimacy. We are going to resist the change that you want to bring, even if you see it as trying to be quite positive or very positive. How has that then informed your approach to changing the UK, which is where you put a lot of your efforts later, if people resist power from on high? So I think that the first thing is that you can only change things if a lot of things are in your favour. So firstly, you need to be in the position of power in the first place. And there's a lot of luck to do with that. And in modern British politics, Getting promotion to the cabinet often has a great deal to do with your party loyalty, to do with your profile in the media, to do with things which may be entirely outside your control. Certainly, even when you're there, a lot depends on your relationship with the prime minister and how strong the prime minister themselves is. So power is a very odd thing. I mean, we, we sometimes sort of pretend that there's a sort of role or position in the state. And if you have it, that immediately means that you suddenly have power. In fact, in any governmental system, all these things are much more fuzzy, much more relative, much more dependent on exactly who is where at what time. So I was able to get a lot done as prisons minister, which was theoretically quite a junior minister opposition, potentially more than I was able to get done as a cabinet minister. And, and explaining why is a lot about understanding personalities, context, the time that you're doing things. It sounds like that would just be that would be a whole discussion in itself to work out exactly how your position and the way that you could understand and influence people around you as prisons minister made you effective. Can you can you try and explain? Yeah, let me try to dissemble this a little bit. So I think the first thing is that to get something done in government, you have to be able to identify a problem very clearly. And the challenge for me in prisons was that. I thought the problem was that prisons were filthy, violent, full of drugs. But most other people didn't think that was the big problem. Academics thought the problem was why are people being sent to prison in the first place? Other people thought we should be focusing on women or young people. Other people thought the challenges could be diversity or building more prisons or financial constraints. So the the starting point is you need your idea. And in my case, it was these places need to be safe. You then need to understand your battleground. And the first thing you have to do is you have to take power. So taking power, in my case, meant taking the blame. The most powerful thing I could do was to say, when people attacked the prisons for being filthy, to say immediately, yes, that's all my fault. That's so interesting. And by saying it's all my fault, suddenly the chief executive of the prison service, the civil servants, my boss, the prime minister, everyone else who could potentially be blamed, steps aside. And by saying it's all my fault, uh, I'm then able to say the next thing, which is, oh, and by the way, I'm going to resign in 12 months if I don't manage to reduce violence. Which suddenly then throws down a gauntlet to your whole department and to the whole credibility of the government to deliver this thing. The next thing is you need to find your allies and you need to find your metaphor. It's partly about 
language. So I needed to find good analogy and I struggled. I mean, initially I started saying, well, maybe we need to run it to more like a naval ship. So people need to be smart. They need to be wearing uniform. It needs to be the same in every ship. They need to turn up on time, et cetera. And I realized that really put people off because people didn't like the apparently militaristic analogy. Then I thought, okay, maybe we need to say we need to run these places like a good hotel. I was saying, look, it's no good you telling me that you've got a very good computer suite if all the cells are filthy. That's like running a hotel and saying you've got lovely flowers in the lobby or you serve a nice appetizer when all the sheets are filthy in the hotel, right? That didn't work. And finally, I realized that the best analogy was probably schools. The way in which you need discipline in schools, the way in which you need to be both loving and strict at the same time. And even that phrase, loving strict, which I took from a head teacher, was very, very important because it was about trying to express the both and, not the either or. Prisons are basically either approached as brutal authoritarian places or they're approached as places where everything can be solved through kindness. And trying to explain to people that you need both the strictness and the love was a big breakthrough for me. And then everything followed from that. You know, I then set up operations rooms, targets, standard coaching teams, trained people, tried to push for new structures. But it basically began by being able to spot the problem, identify who my adversaries were, who I needed to defeat, and then finding the right language uh, to lead people. I find that so interesting, what you were saying about how you took power in that situation was by saying, I'm putting my neck on the line, I'm going to take the blame. And that's so often the thing that is the last people anyone wants to do is to own up and say, you know, I will take the chop in the situation. But by doing so, it gives you a legitimacy and a credibility and to say, look, I've said it. I have said this really matters to me. Now, let's do this. And you're going to listen to me because I put my neck on the line. So you're much more likely to respect and follow that person's lead. And then I think that Luke, following on from that, I mean, reflecting back on it, probably this, the thing that's most important following on from that is to make sure that the organization mm -hmm. understands you're being sincere. So a lot of people came to me afterwards and said, okay, Melissa, we can get you out of this hole. We can redefine what success looks like so that you can't fail. We'll play with the numbers. We'll give you prisons which are bound to do well. Just how tempting was it, Rory? Um, well, it, it wasn't awfully tempting for me, but I do think that it was also important to demonstrate very quickly to the staff that not only was it not tempting, but that I wasn't interested in that and that I wanted them to feel that our measurements were fair. And ultimately to say to journalists, I'm very happy for you to tell me now what you think a fair measurement is, because I can see that whatever I produce, you'll be cynical about. You'll say that I've gained the numbers somehow. So why don't we just sit down now and talk about what you think would constitute improvement? And just briefly, what's your take on leadership? Do you look for the consensus? Do you sometimes go very much and back your own gut if that goes against the expert advice? It's something that I struggle with, to what extent to go with my gut feeling and to what extent to, oh, I really must build a consensus moving forward. So what's your take on it? What's been effective for you? For me, I guess I work by having a very, very strong intuitive prejudice in a particular direction. So predictably, I will intuitively feel that prison officers need to have checklists, they need to be smartly dressed, they need to turn up on time, and we need a very clear sense of what everyone's doing. But I then need to take that very firm instinct 
happen. You know, let's give another example. In international development, the firm instinct would be people need to learn languages. They need to spend a lot of time in these countries. They need to get out into the field. And that then needs to be open to compromise. So then it needs to be open to a lot of meetings of people trying to adjust what I'm saying. So I need to be prepared to say, okay, if you say I can't do this in Liverpool prison for whatever reason, but you want me to do it in Yorkshire, I can do it in Yorkshire. But I still think we need a couple of the big London prisons. And when they say, how about one London prison? I say, no, 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 well, let's try to keep it at two. But I think there's, there's a sense that you have to make it a shared process and then work out what your irreducible bottom lines are, you are and what you're doing. I mean, I noticed in my own life, for example, I've just been renting out my house in London. And I was a very bad negotiator on that because in the end, I just wanted to get it done. Right? I wasn't really prepared to dig my heels in and hold out for a higher price. Or... And that's, I think, one of the central questions in leadership or politics. How much do you care determines a great deal how much you're prepared to give and how bloody-minded you're prepared to be. Because all of us, and particularly politicians, or most politicians, but all of us want to make people happy. Few of us really want to rock the boat or alienate everybody. We like to compromise. We like to be reasonable. We like to listen. So working out when you really are either so confident or care so much that you're not going to budge is mm. key to change. And moving from one type of compound back to another and your time in Iraq, there was a time when you were there in a compound with just your bodyguards. You were shelled by a sheer militia. There wasn't any help coming from anywhere else, really. It sounds like a pretty scary situation. You sent out the other key workers in an armored transport vehicle. They had a rocket go into the side of it. That could have finished them off, but they thankfully and safely got to the airport. How did you keep calm in this situation where everything seemed to be hitting the fan all at once? How did you react? How did you stay grounded and not hit the panic button, I suppose? It's a very different sort of leadership in a sense. I mean, I think a lot of this depends on your personality, your models, your expectations. I found it much easier running a compound that was under siege in Iraq than I did being a backbench MP because all my values, everything I'd read, everything that I'd grown up to feel worked fine commanding a compound under siege in Iraq. I mean, I understood what I was supposed to do, which is not be frightened by the shells, keep everybody else cheery, feed them biscuits, call in the air support. Oatcakes, right. We have a shared love of oatcakes, I should say. It's very important. Everyone knows this. My favourite ride food right now, oatcakes. Very good. Does it work well when riding, Luke? It does, actually. How many miles a day do you ride? It's currently something like 50 miles a day. And oatcakes help with that? They are fantastic ride food, in my opinion. They're slow-release carbohydrates. They keep me going for much longer. There's none of this uh, sugar spike. So I would highly recommend, don't go for these fancy bars. Get a packet of them. You don't need protein. You, protein not good? Well, oh, are they? oats are very high in protein, actually. You've got something like over 10 grams per 100 grams of oat cake that is, is protein. So Goodness, I didn't health food extraordinaire. <laughs> So you're doing the doing the right thing, all the right things. Oh, very good. Oh, well, I'm very cheered up. Okay, that's, that's very good. So I think whereas when I became a politician, all my romantic ideas of what it was supposed to be like crashed into the ground. I was completely bemused, humiliated. 
I realized quite quickly that a lot of the public thought I was awful, that the media was deeply cynical about what I was doing, that my colleagues didn't take a lot of the job seriously, that a lot of what I thought I was doing, I wasn't doing, and a lot of what I was doing felt fake and it was awful. Whereas it's much easier if what you're doing corresponds to your sense of yourself. And, and that's why, obviously, often soldiers can find it perfectly possible to be shot at and doctors can find it perfectly possible to deal with horrible things in emergency rooms. Mm. And what would you say to yourself in your mind? What was actually going round your head? Oh, um, I suppose for me that... I mean, those parts of my life, of course, do feel a little bit odd because they are moments where your life suddenly begins to feel a little bit melodramatic, a little bit like you've suddenly stepped into the pages of a movie. And I, I have different moments in my life like that. So, uh, you know, I delivered my son because he came unexpectedly early. As you do. And I feel the same if I'm trying to resuscitate somebody who's died. I feel the same when I... There's different moments in my life which suddenly seem to take on these very sort of strong symbolic quantities. And I, I think that in traditional societies, there were probably more times in someone's life where that would have happened. One gets the sense with a lot of the Afghan men that I was with that they had lived lives where there were, was quite a lot of moments of very, very high drama, um, sort of opportunities for heroism, which are more difficult, I think, in the contemporary world. And it also sounds like an acceptance of death. And it's not something I'd particularly plan to talk about, but what are your thoughts on our current society in the Western world, our acceptance of death? From a, one perspective, is the ultimate political taboo? Yes, I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, it's something that you probably have many more interesting reflections on than I do. I mean, it's never been something that has particularly worried me. Sorry, I remember being very worried about it when I was 14, 15. I remember waking up in the middle of the night, suddenly realizing that I was going to die. That was a big, big surprise to me. But I think since then, it doesn't worry me so much. I mean, I've had times in my life where I felt I really don't want to die at this particular moment because what I'm doing is so rubbish. I would feel it's like a disappointing moment to go. I felt like that quite a lot as a member of parliament. I didn't feel like that running a charity in Afghanistan. I remember being on a bumpy plane in Kabul and feeling that I'd be quite happy if the plane went down because I felt that I was a very good moment in my life. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Presumably, one of the banal things to say is that it's a very important structuring for our life, that in the absence of it, it would be even more difficult to find a sense of shape or purpose. That's a very interesting answer. And how do you think society views the risks associated with people dying a bit sooner than they might otherwise? Society's a bit sort of schizophrenic about it, isn't it? I mean, you're right. In many ways, we don't want to talk about it, don't focus on it, and are particularly upset when young people die. You know, my father was 93 when he died, and I know a lot of older people. I'm very struck by how extraordinarily phlegmatic and relaxed they are about death. Mm. How, although there might be a sort of idea that we're a society that's in perpetual denial, I'm often struck by the extraordinary dignity of people who must know they're not very far away from dying. And I think there must be something in humans which enables us to cope with it, even with all the problems of our modern culture, which makes people in many ways very, very brave. In fact, I, I wonder whether real fear of death isn't oddly the exception rather than the rule, that it's something that 
can come across people when they're caught off balance, but that actually humans are better at it than we think. But Luke, over to you on that. I think I have to say there's a point here that on one hand, a life well lived and dying at 93, someone's incredibly fortunate. And I speak from my own experience, from the, the experience of my family, from friends I've known who have passed much sooner than that. And my perspective now is if you get to 50 plus, you're doing well and you should be grateful for it. Luke, just on that, I mean, you see, this is very interesting because, of course, the ancient Greeks often didn't think that age mattered awfully. And I suppose potentially a Buddhist would also wonder whether it really mattered at what age it happened. It's the central fact anyway. I think the, the most pertinent question is how you live and what you do with that time. I think at some point, if your years are limited and limited quite significantly, I would struggle to say that you can live as fully, you know, you can do as much as you, you could almost do as much as you want in a year. That's still not going to replace two decades of living, no matter how rich that that time is. But for me, generally, my perspective is we're going to die known quantity right there. What makes me sad is when people are scared to live. And that is something that I've come to recognize is so important that life is, is inbuilt with risks. There are so many reasons why you should just sort of stay at home and lock the door and hope nothing happens. But actually, if you do that, are you living? And so to me, the most important thing is how can you use the time that you have in the vast majority of cases, you can't control when you're going to die. So focus on what you can control. And that is making the most of now and making sure you make the most of creating opportunities. So you've got the best life coming at you as far as possible. And in whatever context that is. These things are well beyond me. I mean, I think the only addition I'd make is to take Aristotle's idea. I think the notion of virtue is very important, which is that uh, the good life is not just about using every second. It's about the way in which notions of virtue, doing well, being well and doing well, notions of generosity, truth, courage, greatness of soul, temperance, appropriate action, living out your role in life become important. And I think Nietzsche probably is also right that shape is important, that a life is, in a sense, an aesthetic construct. I would certainly agree that, as you say, living with virtue, I think if you live in a manner which is good for your soul and makes you happy and you focus on doing the things that make you happy, then you've just got this almost endless spring of energy, of positive energy, which you can then share around. And I think that's where a lot of meaning for life comes for me. What about you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think there are very saintly people who do appear to have immense brimming energy, joy, love that they seem to be able to intuitively share with other people. I'm certainly not that kind of saint. I'm full of uh, crossnesses and imperfections and grumpinesses. Are you human as well, Rory? What? That's <laughs> it. Full of all that. Full of that. Uh, and roused with my students and moments of embattled egotism and doubt. And also, I think the place of achievement in life is very odd because I feel that obviously the philosophers are right that achievement is a pretty odd thing. Having been seen to do something doesn't really matter by the time you're dead, right? I mean, it's pretty irrelevant. But equally, I'm aware in my own life that probably I'm happier now at Yale than I was at Harvard 10 years ago, because at least I tried to be a politician. If I'd never tried, I probably would have been pretty disconsolate. And so was it more important for you 
to be a cabinet minister and the right honourable Rory Stewart or to have tried? I think it was more important to have tried. No, I mean, I suppose it's nice to have got somewhere. I think it would have been very difficult for me if I'd spent nine years as a backbench and never managed to get promoted at all. I, I would have felt very, very confused and bewildered and embittered. So probably it, it's nice to, to be lucky. But I think the key thing for me was that if I'd stayed as an academic 11 years ago and never gone back into the world of public life and effort and just been writing and teaching, I would have always worried that I had missed out on an opportunity in my life, that I'd retired too early. Mm. This is interesting. My thoughts on this is trade-off in a sense, or these, these kind of almost two competing signs of achievement or the goals, and then the journey or the process that gets you there is that I see it that the, the goal or focusing on the achievement is important, but only because it sets you on a journey or a path that you think in the day-to-day or the, the week-to-week is going to be an, an enjoyable and enriching and worthwhile one. That's my take before. And, you know, and I've heard you in the past saying, you know, being an MP was the most difficult job I've done in my life. There sounds like there was a lot of drudgery, a lot of cynicism about what, why you were there, what you were doing, what you were trying to achieve. Politics in the UK is not known to be a nice place. The House of Commons is a slightly odd place beyond that. What was the day-to-day process of being in politics like for you? Well, I think the first thing is that you're there elected by the public as a servant of the public and in another sense as a sort of leader of the public. So what the public wants, what the public thinks of you is incredibly important. And of course, the public isn't one thing. The public is 70 million different people, many of whom think about politics for about five minutes a week. 50% of the British population under the previous prime minister didn't know who the prime minister was. Wow. So you have this sort of idea that, you know, you've been elected by the people, you're representing the people. But the question of who these people are, what they actually want, what they really think about you, um, is very difficult to answer. And of course, the truth is often they don't think about you very much. When they do think about you, they tend to think about you in a pretty cynical and negative way. It's very, very difficult often to manage people's expectations. People in constituencies want their MP to focus on sorting out local issues. And so you pretend that that's what you do. You pretend that really you're there to sort out the residence parking or sort out the argument with their neighbor over a hedge. But actually the truth is constitutionally, you're really set up to do something completely different, which is to go to Westminster and sit in parliament and do whatever parliament is supposed to do. I mean, that's another question. What on earth is parliament supposed to do? I never really worked out what parliament was supposed to do, but definitely it was keeping you away for five days a week from your constituents. And you certainly had only very limited influence over what the county council was doing, which is largely what concerned people on a day-to-day basis, or concerned some people. I mean, other people couldn't have been less interested in those things. They were interested in a completely other scale. They wanted you to get involved in UK arms sales to Saudi Arabia during the Saudi-Yemeni bombing campaigns. And there you have a different type of problem because you've got zero influence over that either. 
So you're perpetually being asked to do things that you can't really do, but in order to get reelected, you have to sort of pretend that you can do those things. Because if you spent your whole time saying, not my job, not my business, obviously nobody would want to vote for you. So it sounds like there there are quite a few challenges in there that probably a lot of people can relate to from their own professional lives of managing expectations. You're beholden to people with very different sets of priorities. You get a lot of flack and that's perhaps you get that in any workplace. You get it very much magnified in politics in general, UK politics. How did you deal with a lot of unpleasant stuff coming your way and also probably feeling a little bit duplicitous at the same time? So feeling duplicitous is not good, really not good. I tried to discipline myself to be as honest as I could. And one of my tricks was I never had a pre-written speech. I always spoke off the cuff because I thought it would force me to try to think through what I was saying more. I promised myself that I'd never give the same speech twice to try to relate to the audience, to be fresh about what I was actually thinking that day and genuinely try to answer questions and engage. That helped me a little bit with one of the problems of politics, which is your relationship to truth and detail. Politics tends to be very sort of bland and slightly mendacious. It relies on sound bites and slogans. And, but of course, there's a lot of risk involved in that. You start doing that, you start talking like that, people can always find things to attack you about. Whereas if you make much blander, safer speeches, you're much less likely to fall on your nose. And how was it that, you know, you're very successful in the FCO, walked across Asia, did great things in Iraq, wrote a very well-regarded book on that, established Turquoise Mountain, a charity NGO out in Afghanistan. You did all these things that almost only could be seen in a positive light. And then suddenly you're in politics in Westminster and you're having to deal with a lot of flack. Just how difficult was that? And how did you deal with it? Firstly, just to amplify that before I think about how I dealt with it, one of the extraordinary things was that nobody cares about what you did before you came into politics. Your colleagues don't care. Most of them don't know. Journalists don't really care. One of the striking things when I was running for the leadership is that one of the big differences between me and Boris Johnson was my CV, what I'd done before I became a politician. But journalists almost never covered that or wrote about that because the convention is that that doesn't really matter. And politics isn't really supposed to be for some reason or the expectation is that it isn't really relevant what your experience was or what you achieved. How did I cope with that? I think I tried to find colleagues that I could discuss ideas with and share values with. And I found some of those. I tried to spend as much time with my constituents as I could because I found that engaging with real people and real problems was, was more reassuring. I got out of the office quite a lot, home to my family, so I didn't get stuck sitting in Westminster bars after the voting had happened. I tried to really fling myself into my departments and really ask myself, what change are we trying to achieve in what time frame and put it on a board for the civil servants to see and feel? It's a very interesting thing. I mean, you, you talk about resilience, Luke. I mean, the truth of the matter is that I was more resilient in Afghanistan, setting up a charity, being in Iraq, than I was in the end in politics. There were jobs that I did in politics where I flourished. One job was prisons. I also got immense fulfillment out of trying to make the argument for a compromise on Brexit. I lost, but I found that very fulfilling. But in the end, I sort of failed. I mean, in the end, you know, I blew up my political career. I got thrown out of the Conservative Party. I got fired. I, you know, and I'm now in Yale. So I sort of been popped out the other end. God, what a failure. Rory, you really screwed up there, didn't you? Well, that's a charming way of putting it, Luke. <laughs> 
I mean, we're going to come back to these failures, as you call them. Though, just to dwell on this idea of resilience, I was expecting you to say something that's coming from me. I, you know, oh, I started running a lot to sort of, you know, de-stress myself. But it sounds like you built up resilience to the flat that you were getting through the evidence of your actions, through knowing that you were, as far as you could, through knowing that you can make a difference. It sounds like that gave you sort of this self-confidence and certitude within yourself to put some of this negative this negativity to one side is is that accurate is that i think that you're right i could only cope with it by trying to take the job as seriously as i could and trying to find bits of the job which you could take seriously and accepting that some bits were not serious anymore Mm -hmm. you know i realized quite quickly that speeches in the house of commons were not serious that that was not a serious chamber it wasn't working and that there was no point my putting four days into writing a speech that nobody was listening to except for my mum on TV and that had no influence at all on policy. Mm. But that other things did make sense and could be done. And I think what would have helped me in retrospect that I didn't realise at the time is to really understand what a long slog it is, how much learning needs to take place, how my ability to be a good Christmas minister probably was based on eight years of learning in ways that I didn't really acknowledge at the time about how you use the media, how you work with civil servants, where to spot the problems, mm-hmm. when to dig your heels in, how to have the influence with key colleagues. I mean, But yes, you've got to take these jobs seriously. You've got to believe that Britain is a serious country. You've got to believe that politics is serious. But the, there's a tension in that, which is the more emphasis you put on that, the more liable you are to disappointment. Mm-hmm. So Getting the balance right between a deeply earnest investment, which is going to be disappointed on the one hand, or taking it all with a pinch of salt and being quite lighthearted on the other hand, which has the other disadvantage, which is that you simply end up becoming cynical and you don't invest enough Mm. in the role. That's a very difficult balance to strike. And I still don't know, reflecting on politics, whether my perspective on it is fundamentally comic or tragic. Do I think that the British political system is basically ridiculous, but in the end, not the end of the world, and it could be worse? Or am I massively morally affronted? And do I think the whole thing is a horrendous tragedy that needs to be exposed? And that largely depends on the expectations that you attach to it. I dare not ask about what you think about um, you know, the seriousness of other politicians, but I will pick up on this balance that you're talking about between the seriousness and then I guess not getting too disappointed when you're very invested. And to me, so much of life, so many things in life are this balance. And one of them that comes to my mind right now is on one hand, and I speak certainly for myself here, like, you know, wanting to get the most out of my time, out of my life, develop as much as possible. And on the other hand, being content and happy with who I am and what I've got. And again, both are important, but it's about having them in harmony as far as possible, rather than seeing them as one being greater than the other. But Luke, although your instinct must be right, and I think we all feel some version of what you said, it's very, very difficult to do because the philosophy underlying those two positions is contradictory. I mean, if you were in a full sense a Buddhist, which would mean that you'd be pursuing your second path of detaching, recognizing those elements of life which are impermanent or illusory, then almost logically you you can't be doing the first stuff of charging around. If on the other hand you're pursuing the first thing, which is a much more, I suppose the model would be much more a sort of classical, heroic model of 
you know, making the most of your life and then and the other. That in turn undermines the second. Now, I don't know what the answer is to this, because I think you're right. I think you do need those things in your life. But it's very difficult to develop a philosophical or logical story to explain how you could be doing two things that seem to be logically contradictory. Right. You talked a bit more about your, and this, these are your words, um, failure at the Tory leadership, the, the debate where you felt that you blew up, didn't give it your best performance. Do you still think of it as a failure? Yes, I suppose so. I mean, I and, and um, certainly the mayoral race as well, where ultimately I dropped out of the mayoral race. Because of COVID, right, predominantly? Yeah, I mean, the election still hasn't happened. It was delayed by 12 months. So I basically ran out of money and didn't, couldn't maintain the whole thing mm-hmm. going for another quarter. No, I think it is, I think, you know, you stand up to do these things. You say, I want to be prime minister. You enter a competition or I'd really like to be mayor and I think I could do it well. And you don't manage it. In the case of the mayor, I never even got into the election. In the case of the leadership competition, I was defeated by Boris. So it does raise big problems. I mean, it, the big question is, why? You know, what is it about the way that I described the world, the way that I spoke, the way that I presented myself that meant that people preferred Boris to me? I think in that sense, I mean, politics is a really interesting profession because it brings that into very, very sharp definition. I mean, in a way, I end up in a single television debate with five other people on stage, which determines my future, determines whether I'm going to be prime minister and influences the future of the country. And it was all crammed into the way that you perform in 60 minutes. It's a school popularity contest, isn't it? I'm really intrigued, though. Did you set out to win or did you set out to give it your absolute best shot to win? So I set out initially, probably symbolically. I mean, I set out to try to make an argument for moderation on the centre ground and make an argument against hard Brexit. And I felt nobody else was doing that. But I also believed that... I would be a better prime minister than Boris and that I had a vision of the country and there was a direction in which we could take the country and that this was my one shot to do it. So my my take on it for what it's worth is that it sounds to me, you know, if, if you gave it your best shot and by and large, I believe you're the sort of chap who does give things your best shot. Is it really a failure because you can't control the outcome? If you did the best that you could on the day, and obviously, if you reran it again, you might have said very different things, but you did gave it your best shot on the day. What happened then happened. The result was decided by a whole load of arbitrary factors. Is it really a failure? And can you just look at it and reframe it? And I'm all about reframing. Can you reframe it as a learning experience of like, well, this is what happened in this instance. I didn't succeed in the way I might have liked, but now I've can take a whole load of different things from it. And in that sense, it's not a failure at all. You definitely can. I think the danger is what type of lesson you take from it. So the student that was irritated by my lecture today and thinks that I'm a grumpy old man would probably say that I've taken the incorrect lesson from it. I've concluded because I was defeated by Boris that we're in an age of populism and that the type of argument that Boris makes is more successful than the type of argument I've made. He would say that I'm reading too much into it, that I'm a sort of bitter old man, I failed, and that I've produced this whole theory about how it wasn't really me that failed, it's that the whole structure of society is geared towards Boris's victory. So I think one has to sort of keep a bit of distance and humility and make sure that you don't tell yourself stories 
about failure, which are about how the whole thing is sort of stacked against you, how everything's unfair or everything's impossible. There you're focusing on the external factors. And to me, I would be in my mind's eye and it's much easier to be uh, sitting in my chair here, like looking on after a year or so, focus on the internal factors. Did you, sure, there's a whole society, but maybe the UK wasn't don't know why, but like, you know, receptive to what you had to say, or rather the, you know, 100,000 or so conservative people who were selecting, but it's the internal factors that perhaps matter more. You were talking about the age of populism. And of course, we are recording this on the 3rd of November. Big things are happening across the pond. You're at Yale and you specialize in, in political crisis, fragile and conflict affected countries. Right now, America seems to be in political crisis. It seems to be fragile and there is a lot of conflict going on. You seem to be the expert for it, Rory, based on your experiences in in Iraq, in Afghanistan. What approach would you take to bringing some level of peace and some sort of balm to America? To use the cliche, the challenge is always to try to focus on finding what we have in common. And that's difficult because in campaigning in elections, what usually works is to define wedges, what what you have that's different. I mean, an election is basically about saying to an audience, vote for me, not the other person. So you wanna really clarify, there's a lot of instincts to really clarify the differences. No, 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 I'm this, they're that. Define yourself positively, define them negatively. But to bring a country together, you almost have to do the reverse. You have to sort of say, well, actually, Luke's got a good point there. And there's a lot of things that he's right about. And maybe I didn't put enough emphasis on this and try to find a way of listening hard to what's being said and expressing a politics that doesn't feel like winners and losers, us against them. And that's a difficult transition to make because all the people that have been working with you have been so pumped up into this very antagonistic us against them. So the challenge, I suppose, for Biden, assuming that he wins, is is he going to feel that he's going to adopt ever more ambitious progressive language, or is he going to try to find a way of acknowledging what it is that Trump supporters feel and which bits of it is he prepared to acknowledge? Which bits does he want to reject? What's he prepared to endorse? And a lot of that will be about culture and identity, not just about economics. It's very tempting for the left to suggest, oh, well, all we have to do is deliver economic development for those areas, and that'll be fine, and we'll deal with all the problems. But actually, you know, Obama and Clinton were not able to do that. Those areas are as they are, notwithstanding Obama and Clinton's administration. So it's something else needs to happen, and that's about acknowledging the other. It's about yeah, finding a way. I mean, that's why I think the center ground is awfully important. And in that sense, you do sound like someone who solicits and listens to suggestions from all sides and perhaps tries to incorporate where you can. And that also brings us back to what you said earlier about knowing where your red lines are and Biden, were he to be president, him knowing what he will and won't do. Are red lines even helpful? Well, no, I think red lines are generally not awfully helpful. I mean, maybe red lines are the wrong language. I think 
having a sense of what your values are, having a sense of how you view the world, having a sense of the kind of America that you want to create and what feels non-negotiable in your vision for America, which in Biden's case might be simple, might simply be ideas of decency, uh, might simply be about trying to be fair to people. It doesn't necessarily need to be that he has a utopia in mind, but he can totally describe what America will look like in 20, 30 years' time. It might just be a style of governing. It might be, I'm going to govern in a slightly more humble way. I'm going to listen to people more. I'm going to be a bit more realistic. I'm going to give more space to certain kinds of experts. And um, on, on the off chance that we can get Joe Biden listening to the Facing Up podcast, what would your uh, you know, word of advice be to him? Don't nurture anti-British resentment. <laughs> He often jokes that his that he learned from his grandfather, who was a, an Irish Catholic, a deep, deep, profound distrust and contempt for Britain. And I hope that's something that he will feel big enough to overcome. Just because his grandfather felt like that, it's not good enough for him to feel like that. There you go, Joe. You've heard it from Rory. We're all right, Brits, generally. We've made a hash of lots of things, but, you know, we still both speak English. That's that's the commonality, right? You know, we're, we're looking for the similarities Got to do better than that. Got to do. Got to do better than that. I'm, I'm sure That's I do. Too self-deprecating. I've, I've, yeah. I've lost. We've we've lost Joe. Sorry. Let's side down. One of the final questions I want to ask now, Rory, is you. You have done a lot in your life. We've kind of touched on different elements. You've you've written several books. You've presented some TV programs for the BBC. You have a young family. How? Do you try and get lots of different things done in perhaps, you know, either in an abstract way or quite a practical way? You've had a varied life. You've taken quite a few different paths from FCO to adventurer to running provinces to to government, running a business essentially with the NGO. How have you managed to combine those different things? Because I think this is something I'm genuinely very interested by. How do you actually manage to sort of, at least in your own body make this a coherent narrative so that you can keep on changing focus even on a daily basis with the big things right the big career choices i need to find with conviction a sense of what it is that i want to be doing where it is i want to be living what kind of activity i want to be engaged in and then just do it i mean it's important to just up sticks and do it. That, of course, becomes more difficult when you have children. So, you know, if I suddenly now decide that I want to move to Jordan, I have to think about my children's education in a way that I didn't before. But can still be done. And I don't think actually children particularly benefit from the adults living constrained and apologetic lives where they're always feeling that they could have done other things if it hadn't been for the children and somehow implicitly blaming them for it. Um, I think in the day-to-day, Well, I mean, I'm very lucky that in a sense, I'm always, and I have been for years and years, very, very busy. I mean, people come to me endlessly with things and I tend to say yes to almost everything. So then almost regardless of what I actually want to be doing in my day, I've got so many deadlines that I've got to meet that I'm sort of forced to work. And in the past, you've talked about having a a sense of duty, an obligation to make the most, I suppose, in your words, in, in the past of, you know, your your background, your upbringing, having a lot of opportunities. You're talking about a lot of deadlines and saying yes and saying yes, and then having a lot of work to do. How do you find the balance between having a ton of pressure come down on your head, partly self-imposed because you feel you should, and then that actually ending up sort of squashing some of the enjoyment out of life? I suppose um, 
again, these things are easier at certain times of your life than others. I mean, there are definitely moments where I've got far too much on. Years can pass where I haven't actually had any time to do what I really love. But I usually try to cut out time mm -hmm. to set aside six weeks to go walking, to set aside my time to go meditate or go to a monastery. And, you know, my family and friends are very, very good at sort of acknowledging that I'm going to likely to say, okay, I want to do this thing and allowing me to do it. And let us into a, a little secret. What do you really love doing? Skiing. Skiing. I would have liked to be a ski instructor. Oh, it's not too late. It's not too late. I don't know whether I'd quite be the young, glamorous ski instructor I fantasised about being. I'd be a bit of an old, crocked ski instructor now. Is that better than an old man professor? <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> Rory, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you on Facing Up. And as you know, there are three questions I ask every guest, basically so I can leech off your knowledge and life experience, so I know where to go, what to listen to, and what to read. So to begin with, where is your favorite or most significant place? Afghanistan, without a doubt. I think there is nowhere so beautiful, no people that I know on earth who seem to so embody dignity, nor is there any landscape or communities that I found so richly expressive of the potential of being human. And would you go Kabul or other places beyond? You've sampled a lot. <laughs> okay, okay. Somewhere between Herat and Kabul. Your favourite piece of music, Rory? At the moment, it would probably be Gilbert and Sullivan's Pirates of Penzance, which I listen to with my children. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Now, that was a favourite of my dad's too, so good dad choice for the music. Um, Thank you. No judgement passed either, by the way. Big fan myself. Um, and finally, your, your favourite book or your most significant book? I think it probably has to be Anna Karenina because I think the balance between the characters, their moral vision of the world their complexity, their way in which they navigate their existence probably stays with me most strongly. I mean, in a different era, I might have said George Eliot's Middlemarch, but I think in the end, in the end, I can't really get past Tolstoy. Mm -hmm. A masterpiece for a reason. Rory, it has been such a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, unique experiences and time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Luke. Cheers. Bye. Good luck for the cycling. Bye-bye. Thank you. And that was my conversation with Rory Stewart. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope that you enjoyed it. For me, that was an utterly thought-provoking conversation. My brain is admittedly slightly fried right now. But one of the things I will definitely take away from it is how Rory took power by taking the blame. And to me, by putting your neck on the line, that can give you a moral standpoint and a legitimacy that other people respect and can help you get stuff done. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Yeah.